This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, decoding the enigma that is Cyril Ramaphosa. Biographies account for at least half the books I own and legacy of an embedded fascination for our species. This accumulation was turbocharged by Berkshire Hathaway chairman and devoted bookworm Warren Buffett. Making small talk while signing autographs, I asked how many books the then 80-year-old read. He told me he'd slowed down to two a day, and his favorites were biographies. And as you really can't go wrong following Buffett, well, my latest investment has been in the 413 pages of Anthony Butler's superb biography on South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. Classically trained Butler, who read a PPE at Oxford and has a PhD from Cambridge, wrote the book more than a decade ago after taking a nine-month break from his academic duties at the University of Cape Town to interview those close to this very private, deeply thoughtful politician who has and is playing such a massive role in his homeland. Butler's book, first published in 2008, was updated in 2013. In it, he provided an insightful postscript. He's working on yet another update, which will be out soon. But it would be senseless to wait for that, because this is a masterpiece. It opens a window into an enigmatic statesman who's the perfect antidote to the fake news and whispering campaigns of our times and provides balance to the knee-jerk of event-driven reporting which shapes so much of our often misguided perceptions. I'd wager that, like me, when you get to the end of Butler's book, you're likely to end up feeling that Project Rebuild South Africa couldn't be in better hands. Kicking off the interview, I asked the author what motivated the project. Well, I had been thinking uh, of writing a biography of Ramaphosa for really a, a number of years, and my interest was initially in the National Union of Mine Workers in the 1980s. In the years in between, Ramaphosa moved through a whole series of really quite distinct and, and fascinating political episodes. So he moved from the union movement into a leadership role in the ANC in the early 90s, and then into business and into the, the world of black economic empowerment. And so he not only passed through many of the key staging points in the development of modern South Africa, including the constitutional settlement, I should mention, but also he captured the contradictions of South African political life. In a way, you could, you could look, at, look at Ramaphosa and see somebody who had tried to address the challenges uh, of uh, black workers, uh, the most exploited black workers on the, in the mining industry, a person who had become a businessman, a person who dealt with state building and constitution building. So for me, he was a very obvious 
subject for a biography. The one very important resource that we have as academics, if we're fortunate, is to be able to take sabbatical leave. So I had nine months with no teaching, and I had just enough money to travel and interview people. And so most of the research and writing was done in that nine months. I realized I had to work quite fast. It, it, it was, in many ways, surprisingly easy to get people to talk to me. Not everyone who I wanted to talk to, but uh, it was a very interesting experience. You wrote a postscript in 2013, which is five years ago, and the last sentence in the whole book reads, Ramaphosa may yet become South Africa's president, but the road to the highest office in the land is likely to be a rocky one. I always felt that he had unusual political resources, both as a person, but also as a result of the, the networks that he had become part of in his union career, an ANC career. So I think we, we always looked at his generation of Kauteng-based politicians with people like Tokyo Sikwali, Matthias Poser, and I think many of us wondered if one of them might eventually become president. Of the three, Ramaphosa was always the best place. But what I think none of us foresaw was that in 2012, he would become Jacob Zuma's ANC deputy president and then state deputy. And I think we still don't really know how that occurred. But it clearly involved a, a very good deal of long-range long planning. That ability to think years into the future is a cornerstone of the Ramaphosa that we meet and get to understand in Butler's book. Like how, as a teenager during the height of apartheid South Africa, this disenfranchised lad from Soweto told journalist and political commentator Dennis Beckett that he would one day be the country's president. In the 2013 edition, there was some change to the quotation because I talked to Dennis again. To, just to clarify and to make sure that we put it entirely accurate. Um, but that, that, was the, uh, that was what he remembered, that Ramaphosa was supremely self-confident and talked about being the president. And in that situation, when, when the country was still in the middle of apartheid, it's quite an extraordinary thing for a young Christian teenager to say. Quite extraordinary. You mentioned uh, his early Christianity or, or very close relationships with Christianity, and then throughout the book it's, it's pockmarked with quotes, uh, including some that you brought from the Bible. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that, how his value system was influenced by those early years? It's uh, an area where it's particularly difficult to access as a biographer, to understand people's inner religious and ideological lives. Clearly, he was a he was a, a Christ, Christian first and foremost as a um, a student as a school uh, a school school pupil, um, and one of his contemporaries said of him that he was never see, never seen without his Bible, and at that time in the uh, early 1970s, when he was in high school and then he went to University of the North. 
there was what we could describe as a, a form of liberation theology in South Africa. And it was at one end of a continuum of black consciousness politics. So we're all familiar with the, the arguments of black consciousness intellectuals that uh, Christianity was an imposition by the colonial power. So it's the white man's religion that was one of the instruments of oppression. But there were also at the other end, there were student activists like Ramaphosa and his contemporary Frank Shikani, who later became DG in the presidency under Bacon, who were Christians, but they were also radicals. And they used uh, their Christian beliefs as a way of challenging apartheid discrimination. I think that in my mind, the key break for Ramaphosa uh, in, in many respects came with the two periods of detention where he was kept in solitary confinement for much of the time and where there were great stresses and a great uncertainty about his future. And I think he came out of detention a different person um, and a person who was, um, at least on the face of it, no longer willing to work through church-based institutions. Ramaphosa may no longer carry his Bible with him everywhere, but he never lost his affection for the beloved Lutheran church of his youth, an upbringing that instilled him with a humility that seems to have never left. It was put to good effect in South Africa's negotiated settlement in the early 1990s, when Ramaphosa, still in his 30s, headed the ANC's team. Butler reckons the Constitution itself was always going to emerge from wide collaboration, from consensus. But he says that the credit given Ramaphosa for shepherding the process is fully justified. There were many opportunities for the whole process to collapse. So I think the Constitution itself was a set of compromises that were a product of wider structural and political forces. But Ramaphosa's great contribution was to ensure that, that, that those negotiations could come to a, a conclusion uh, and not be derailed or destabilized by the political complex. We should remember that there were periods when the negotiations appeared to be close to breakdown. And the key negotiators continued to talk to one another. It wasn't just Rolf Mayer and Cyril Ramaphosa. There were also um, really very sustained relationships between other negotiators, including Mike Maharaj on the ANC side and uh, Fani Vandermeer on the government National Party side. But Ramaphosa's negotiating skills they were learnt uh, quite hard through his career in the National Union of Mine Workers. Initially, when he began as a negotiator, on the one side was the Chamber of Mines, on the other was NUN, and not all of the negotiations that he participated in went well, and he honed his skills 
over seven, eight, nine years of negotiations. And he was therefore, for that reason, for the ANC, a very valuable resource. He might well not have become an important player in the ANC if they didn't need a negotiator, someone who had real experience of negotiating complex deals. And that certainly is standing, or appears to be standing, the country in good stead at the moment. He was in New York recently talking to Americans, just before that in China, and we know how that relationship is going at the moment between China and America. He's able to court, uh, when he was a trade unionist, um, the, the old Soviet Union, as well as the Scandinavians, as well as the Americans. He seems, reading throughout the book, to have this incredible ability to charm all sides. And I suppose in the South Africa of today, that has got to be a huge asset. I think that that has certainly been a hallmark of his career, that he has been able to persuade people of quite different ideological and political persuasions, that he is broadly sympathetic to them. Perhaps the best example of that was his role in the uh, minimum, minimum wage settlement that that, uh, was reached last year. So many people saw that as a poisoned chalice, that Jacob Zuma had handed him the key role in determining whether South Africa should have a minimum wage, what level it should be set. And politically, that uh, appeared to be an attempt to set him at odds with the Kasatu constituency that he needed to pose a credible challenge to Nkosazana Blumini Zuma in the conference last year in the, uh, the vote for the ANC leadership. And the way that he managed it over the, those two years was to, first of all, keep himself at arm's length from the detail of uh, what a minimum wage would do. Would it have employment effects? Would it have effects on poverty? He didn't commit himself personally, didn't express his own opinion. He set up an arm's length panel of experts. He put in chain a medlac process. But ultimately, the, those deliberations, based in part on evidence and reasoning and uh, contributions from experts, produced a, an outcome that was politically palatable to business and to labor. So it was a pragmatic process, one in which Ramaphosa didn't reveal his personal preferences, but also one that secured ultimately buy-in from both from big business, at least, and from the politically important element in labor, um, Kisatu. So I think that, in a way, that it captures his approach to many issues. That people on perhaps both sides of that debate were willing to give him credit for taking their views seriously. The other poison chalice that appears to have been given to him is the whole land expropriation question. Are you seeing a similar process being followed there? My suspicion is that Ramaphosa is, in fact, interested in land reform and that long predates the Nazareth Conference. So Ramaphosa is, of course, a, uh, a farmer. He also grew up in uh, Soweto, in brickfields, uh, and then in Soweto, 
So he has perspectives of his own about land reform, both rural and urban. And uh, I, I think that he has not just been making the best of a bad job, in a sense. I think he probably was going to turn to the land reform issue in that effect. I think perhaps now is a difficult time, and it's better to engage in a process of that kind when you have greater clarity about political authority, where the economy is in a better condition, where international investors are more comfortable with what the government is doing, so it wasn't an ideal situation, but I think that you can see from the way in which he's responded that he's thought about the issues, not just the uh, issues from the perspective of commercial agriculture, which I would say is the first key sector. But there, Ramaphosa is not just a farmer. He also was, of course, engaged as the deputy chair of the National Planning Commission in thinking about how agriculture could be a driver of economic growth and employment. It comes across through the book that uh, you're a fan, that Ramaphosa, is, he makes mistakes, but he tends to learn from them. Time and again we saw that. We saw it in the trade union movement. We saw that in politics. We saw that in business where his initial missteps were turned into spectacular successes thereafter. Is a biographer allowed to be a fan of the, of the subject? Well, I, w- I wouldn't say that I'm a fan. <laughs> uh, what, one problem with writing a biography is you, do, you become quite tired often of the subject. Um, even though I wrote the biography relatively quickly, um, I think it, 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 it's certainly um, difficult to be a an enthusiast, an open-eyed acolyte of anybody who you study closely. But he is a very impressive person in his ability, first of all, to bounce back from setbacks, to listen in situations that politicians have to they have to sit in extensive, extended meetings with people whose opinions they may not agree with, to listen to them seriously and to try to broker agreements between them. So he's a person of enormous application, a person who can work relentlessly, a person who is willing to listen to people with divergent viewpoints. And that's a, quite a skill set in South Africa's current political context. The, the doubts about him have often concerned his ability to, uh, to be decisive. Many people who know him well said he would never run for president because he knew he could win. And we've all been proved wrong on that. So that was a, um, a prediction that was almost universally held. Uh, and he really planned and fought for that victory at Nazarek. And after that victory, Zuma was dispatched very fast. So I think we misread him there. 
that there is uh, more of a streak of ruthlessness than we realized. But also, personally, I, was, I wasn't sure that initially that Ramaphosa was sufficiently interested in public policy to make a good president. One reason for that is that he, he doesn't mind if people think he is ill-informed or doesn't know very much about a subject. A number of people I talked to were surprised that uh, they had assumed that Ramaphosa was not on top of an issue, and then suddenly he came out with an almost perfect recall of conversations that they'd had two or three years previously with very detailed knowledge of what the key issues were. So I think that's part of his personality, although he's sometimes um, sensitive to criticism. He doesn't feel a need to show that he's smart and on top of things. And that doesn't mean that he isn't smart and on top of things. Anthony, there's a lot in your biography that is impressive, as you said earlier, about Cyril Ramaphosa. But as a South African reading it, you really have to be uplifted, given what the country's been through in the last 10 years of uh, almost the antithesis of a thinking president uh, that, that one has in the seat now. And is it naive to think that Ramaphosa is the answer to a maiden's prayer? To some extent, <laughs> to some extent we all live on hope in current circumstances. But I think that uh, at least there is is some grounds for hope now. And this time last year was really a very depressing period. And it was difficult to see where the grounds for hope lay. In some parts of the book, you you do say that if Ramaphosa was in the race, he would have been a, a good successor. How would you rate him as being the best suited to the situation that South Africa is going into now? I don't think that, that any politician has the, the full range of capabilities that are needed to deal with the kind of multifaceted problems that the government is facing. But the, the country, it seems to me, needs to mobilize people of many different ideological and political persuasions get them to work together to address these difficulties. And that is his skill. That's his skill. And we're, we're in a world that is it's beset by, by polarization in many countries, in their political, not just their political competition between parties, but just in the, the character of political debates. And so Ramaphosa is in many ways a, a, a fortunate a choice on the part of the ANC, or, or perhaps not a fortunate choice, perhaps somebody who has arrived at the right time. At the right time, perhaps not just for the ANC, but for the young democracy as a whole. With the benefit of hindsight, it's difficult to imagine anyone else within the ruling political party who at December's elective conference would have been able to stop a Zuma dynasty and all that that implied. That was Anthony Butler, author of the biography on Cyril Ramaphosa.
And this has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.